0: I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 reads, Now on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. Now we know from chapter 8 and verse 2 that this month is the seventh month and it's been a busy month for the children of Israel. On the first day, it was a Sabbath, and they came together, as we're told in the early part of chapter 8, to listen to Ezra read the Word of God for six hours. On the second day of the month, the heads of the households gathered again to study the Word of God, and there they discovered some new insights into the Feast of Booths. On the tenth day, they observed the Day of Atonement, and on that day the people brought two goats to the high priest. He cast lots and And the loser was slaughtered and sacrificed and the blood was taken into the holy of holy places and sprinkled on the mercy seat. The other goat he laid his hands upon and he confessed the sins of Israel over that goat. And then that goat was released into the wilderness as the scapegoat, demonstrating that their sins were carried away. And then on the 15th through the 22nd day, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, reminding them of how God had provided for Israel in the wilderness. And for the first time in nearly a thousand years, they obeyed Leviticus 23 by having each family build huts to live in for the week. And now it's the 24th day of the month, and they're meeting again. Now, the 24th day is not a feast day. It's not a holy day. You say, well, why are they meeting then? Haven't they met enough? I mean, they met 11 days out of the first 22 days of this month, and now it's the 24th, and it's their day off, and they're meeting again. Why? Because they've got some unfinished business to take care of. You see, they have gathered together to get real with God about their sin. That need arose really on the first day of the month. When Ezra stood up and read the Word of God, they began to weep. And they couldn't really deal with their sin on that occasion because if you remember back in chapter 8 and verse verse 9, the leaders told them, it's a feast day, you need to be happy. Verse 9 says, this day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. Verse 11, the leaders said, be still for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And so they had this welling up, this sense of guilt inside them that caused them to weep, but they hadn't really addressed that yet. And apparently it was not satisfied on the Day of Atonement perhaps because that was too formal of an arrangement, perhaps because that basically focused on the sins of the previous year and their sins actually went back even further than that, and perhaps it was because they were beginning to realize that a a once-a-year confession of sin was not enough to have a vital relationship with God. And so they gather together on this day to get real with God, and what we see in chapter 9 is their prayer. And verses 1 to 5 give us the setting for the prayer. The attitude of the people is pretty apparent from the outset because they come together with fasting. Now, fasting is when you give up a craving of the body for a greater need of the Spirit. Israel was only required to fast one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But on this day, the 24th of the 7th month, they had come together with fasting because they're serious about getting right with God. And not only that, what we're told, they came in sackcloth. Now, people typically dress for the occasion. You go to a funeral, people wear black. You go to a party, they dress in festal, festive apparel. On this occasion, they dressed in sackcloth, which was like burlap. In Genesis thirty-seven thirty-four, we read that when Jacob was told that his son Joseph was killed by a wild animal, he put on sackcloth and mourned. In Jonah chapter 3, we read that the city of Nineveh repented in sackcloth. In Job 16 15, after all that had befallen Job, we're told that he dressed in sackcloth. And so it is the attire of mourning and repentance and pain. And so the people come fasting in sackcloth, and then we read that they had dirt on them, which is really the ultimate expression of repentance. Can't get any lower than dirt. And they were essentially saying to God, we are a dirty people. For the first time, many of them are making a right assessment about themselves. And then notice verse 2. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They separated from foreigners. Now, this was an important part of Israel's calling. In Leviticus 20, 26, the Lord had said to Israel, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I will set you apart from the nations to be my own. They were to be set apart. They had not done a very good job of that because earlier in this book of Nehemiah, we've read about their interactions with Sanballat and Tobiah and how these foreigners had influenced the people of Israel. But now, when it's time to get real with God, they separate themselves from the foreigners. See, if you are going to get real with God, you are going to have to separate yourself from the world around you. And the reason some of us are not right with God is because we won't give up our friends and we won't cut those connections with those who are pulling us down. A lot of times we get so close to sinners that we don't notice that we look like them. And we're not influencing them, they are influencing us. And so when it's time to get right with God, they pull away and they separate. Now it's important to make a distinction here because if you become simply separate from sinners without becoming devoted to God, that's simply isolation. If you try to become devoted to God without becoming separate from sinners, that is hypocrisy. You see, they separated themselves in order to become devoted to the Lord. And the second thing we read in this verse is they confess their sins and the sins of their fathers. Now, it's rather popular today to reflect on the actions of your parents and what impact that had on you. In fact, if you can't remember everything about your childhood, we've got hypnotists today who can help you remember things you never even knew you remembered. And there are two extremes to that. One is to look back at your parents and say they did everything right. Therefore, I will blindly follow what they did. If they did it, I'll do it, unquestionably. The other extreme is to say my parents did everything wrong and I am the way I am because of my parents. It's their fault. I blame them. You see, the balance we find in this verse, because these people went back to their family tree and they confessed the sins of their fathers and they confessed their own sins. Some of you are a mess today because of your parents but it's not all their fault. You see, I need to confess their sins if they sin. I need to confess my sins as well because I am responsible as well. And then verse 3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now the Jews referred to the day as the 12 hours of light between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. And because they had no clocks or watches... They divided the day up into force. And they divided the night into force. That's why you remember when Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water in Mark chapter 6, we're told that it was the fourth watch of the night. That is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the last quarter of the night. And so here it says they stood for a fourth of the day. That is three hours they stood and they listened to the word of God. And then we're told that they worshipped and confessed for another three hours. Apparently, on their knees, because when we get to verse 5, the Levites say to them, Arise. So they stood and listened to the Word of God for three hours, and then they bowed down and they worshipped for three hours. And so we're back to our six-hour meeting like we had in the previous chapter. And I would remind you again that if you want to get real with God, it's going to take the sacrifice of some time. We sing, take time to be holy, but rarely do we make the sacrifice of that time in order to be holy. And it takes a commitment of time. And before we move on from this verse, I want you to notice the balance here. They spend half the time in the Word and half the time in worship. They listen to the Word of God and they worshiped. And we need both of those. See, if we have the Word without worship, what do we have? We have knowledge. And what did Paul say about knowledge? In 1 Corinthians 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 1, he said, knowledge does what? It puffs up. It makes me arrogant. And that's not enough. See, there are a lot of people who can win at Bible trivia, but they don't know the first thing about giving glory to God. I've got to have the Word of God, and I've got to have worship. Some people have worship without the Word. And what do they have? They're misguided. There are a lot of people trying to worship God today, but they're not coming back to the Word of God to find out how to do that. In John chapter 4, Jesus talked to the woman at the well, and she told him she was a worshiper. He said, well, our fathers worship in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. You say you've got to worship in Jerusalem. Who knows? We're all worshipers. You know what Jesus said to her? John chapter 4, verse 22, he said, you worship that which you do not know. You are worshiping, but you have no knowledge. And then Jesus gave the balance in John 4, 24. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship how? In spirit and in truth. See, I need both. I need the word of God, the truth. I need the spirit, which enables me to worship, which is the reaction to the word of God, the response to the worship of God. The word of God, I bow on my knees and I worship him. The word and worship. These people had that. They had that balance. And so as they came, they were true worshipers. And then notice verse 4. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua and seven of his fellow Levites, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Now they stood on the platform. This is probably the one that was built in chapter 8 for Ezra. They stood up there and they cried out to God. Why did they cry out? Well, it really showed the expression of their guilt on this occasion because they were confessing their sins. It also enabled the people to hear them because they were leading the people in prayer and the people were entering into that prayer to the Lord. Then verse 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua and seven of his fellow Levites said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Now arise and pray. And the rest of this chapter is the prayer. Now, this is the longest prayer in all the Bible. Now, I see some of you looking at your watches. Oh, my. It's the longest prayer in all the Bible. If you want to find the the chapters that deal with prayer, it's pretty simple. Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. Those are all prayer chapters. This is one of them today. And what I'd like to do initially is point out to you two important aspects that I see in this prayer that are necessary in any prayer of confession. The first aspect is an understanding of God's character. The Levites say, arise and bless the Lord, and then notice the opening words of the prayer at the end of verse 5. O may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. God, may your glorious name be praised and blessed. And then as we go through this prayer, we're going to find that that's exactly what's going on. God is being exalted. Look at verse 6. Thou alone art the Lord. Verse 7, thou art the Lord God. Verse 8 at the end, thou art righteous. Verse 17, the last half of the verse. But Thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and Thou didst not forsake them. Verse 19, Thou in Thy great compassion. Verse 25, last phrase, Thy great Goodness verse 27 in the middle according to thy great compassion verse 28 at the end according to thy compassion verse 31 nevertheless in thy great compassion thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them for thou art a gracious and compassionate god verse 32 now therefore our god the great the mighty and the awesome god who does keep covenant and loving kindness verse 33 Thou art just. Thou hast dealt faithfully. You see, this is a verse that exalts God. And when I exalt God, you know what happens freely at that point? When I exalt God, then I freely begin to confess my sins. And so they exalt the Lord, and what we find here is that then they confess to Him. They confess the sins of their fathers. That's in verse 26. Or I'm sorry, yeah, verse 16. But they are fathers acted arrogantly, they became stubborn, they would not listen, they refused to listen, they did not remember, they became stubborn. They confessed the sins of their fathers and they confessed their own sins in verse 33. However, thou art just, for thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. They are saying, God, you are great, we are not. You are faithful, we are unfaithful. You are just. We are unjust. Listen, are you having trouble coming clean with God this morning? Just take a moment to exalt Him. Just take a moment to come back to the Word of God and find out who God is. And you see, when I exalt God, humility is a given. When I give Him the place He deserves, my only response to Him is to humbly bow before Him and confess my sin. Second thing, second aspect of this prayer that has to be in any prayer of confession is not only an understanding of God's character, but I need an understanding of history. And as we look at this prayer, it is really a history lesson. It's an overview of the history of Israel from creation to the day of Nehemiah. And it underlines God's great work and it underlines man's failure. Now you say, well, why on this occasion do they have such a fresh understanding of the history of God's work in the world? Well, the answer is, if you look at the end of chapter 8, we read in verse 18 that he read from the book of the law of God daily. For the last week, they have been reading the word of God, sometimes six hours at a time. So they have been going over the history of Israel, and now as they begin to pray, all of this history comes into focus as they're praying to the Lord. Now, it's interesting. The other two long prayers besides this chapter are Ezra chapter 9. Ezra does the praying, and Ezra is the one we're told about in Ezra 7.10 that he set his heart to study the law. He set his heart to study the Word of God, and out of that flowed prayer. Daniel chapter 9, you read the first couple verses of Daniel chapter 9, and it says that he was reading from Jeremiah the prophet, and then he went on into prayer. You see, I soak myself in the Word of God, and then out of that my prayer flows and it becomes scriptural. It becomes wise. And so that's what happens here. It's no, no surprise to me that the longest prayer in the Bible follows a week of listening to the Word of God. And out of that flows a natural response to the Lord. And so we need an understanding of history. Not only did they study the Word, but during the past week they have been living in huts. Now, can you imagine this? You're out with your family living in a hut, and Junior says, Dad, why are we living in this hut? And Dad says, well, it's to remind us of how God provided for our forefathers in the wilderness. Well, why were they in the wilderness? And you see, Dad has to become a history teacher, and he has to explain to his family all the things that have happened in the past. And so here we have the prayer, and it's fresh and full of history. They have been reading about the history of Israel, and they have been role-playing the history of Israel. And I believe a sense of history enables me to learn not only from my own experiences, but from the patterns of failure in the past. George Santa Anna wrote, those who do not remember the past are condemned to relive it. You see, we have the history books of the Old Testament not just so we can have Sunday school lessons. We have them so that we can learn from them. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to Israel as an example and they were written for our instruction. We are to learn from their failures so that we don't follow that same pattern. Are you having a difficult time this morning getting real with God about your sin? Then you simply need to look back at the past and see not only their sin, but the consequences that came from them not turning from their sin. And it encourages us to get right with the Lord. And so this prayer of confession looks up with an understanding of God's character, and it looks back with an understanding of history. Now, the nature of this prayer is really very simple, and I want to show it to you briefly before we look at it. Uh, We see the nature, for instance, look at verse 6. Thou alone art the Lord, verse 7. Thou art the Lord God, verse 8. Thou didst find His heart faithful, verse 9. Thou didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, verse 10. Thou didst perform signs and wonders, verse 11. Thou didst divide the sea before them, verse 12. And with a pillar of fire, thou didst lead them, verse 13. Then thou didst come down on Mount Sinai, verse 14. So thou didst make known to them thy holy Sabbath. Verse 15, thou didst provide bread. Thou didst bring forth water from a rock. Thou didst tell them to enter in order to possess the land. Thou didst. Till we get to verse 16. And notice what it says. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. See, we have thou didst. All the things that God did, and then the response to that is, but they. You see, the contrast in this prayer is between the glory of God and the stupidity of man. And all through this prayer, we see the glory of God, and in response to that, we see the stupidity of man. Now, I don't know about you, but I can see that in the past. I can look in the Word of God, and sometimes I say, how could they be so stupid? And to be honest with you, I can see that in most of your lives. I look at it sometimes I say, well, why are you being so stupid? But you know where I have a problem? when I have to look at my life right now and say, I'm being stupid. See, that's where it comes to. And this prayer takes us from the glory of God and the history of the past and it brings us right into the present and says, you're stupid. You need to get real with God about where you're at. Now, what I want to do this morning, and it's a big endeavor, I want to go through this passage real rapidly and I want to use as our outline the historical movement that goes through it. And so our outline will be the historical framework that's laid out in this prayer. It begins with creation in verse 6. Notice, Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before thee. They are going back to the display of God's glory in creation and they are exalting the Lord. And they say, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, and not only the heavens, you made the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, all life comes from you, and the host of heaven, that is the stars, actually bow down and worship you. That's our God. I heard a story about a seminary professor he was riding on a train one time and he ended up sitting by a little boy and so he wanted to sort of prime the conversation to a spiritual context and so he turned to the little boy and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this apple if you can tell me something that God can do. Well, the little boy, who was much sharper than he anticipated, turned and said, sir, I'll give you a barrel of apples if you can tell me something God can't do. You see, let's start there because the list is shorter. In fact, there is no list of the things God can't do. You want an impressive resume, just look around. God made it all. You know, I'm excited. As I get older, I seem to have more of a sense of awe when I look at creation. I, I think I must have, I guess it was growing up on the television, you know, that, and special effects that you kind of think, well, anything can happen. But there's something, I, more and more I find myself quoting Psalm 19, where we read, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Everywhere we look, we see God. You go out at night and you look up at the stars, and I'm just amazed with that. I see, I see babies being formed in the womb, and these stomachs coming out, and it's a, it's a miracle. Last fall, I planted some bulbs. I took these scroungy little, they look like potatoes that didn't make it to the grocery store. And you stick them in the ground about six inches down and you walk away from them and guess what happens? This spring out comes these glorious flowers with orange beauty and and I'm just like, wow, God, I am amazed at you. I I didn't know you were this great. In fact, the end of verse 5 expresses it. It says, you are exalted above all blessing and praise. You know what that's saying? No matter how much we can praise and exalt the Lord, He is higher than that. You never have to worry about using an adjective that doesn't fit. See, nobody says, oh, well, I wouldn't go that far. No, we exalt Him. And when we're finished exalting Him, He is further than that. He is higher than that. This has been the time of the year for recognition. This past week, I went to my daughter's graduation from kindergarten. And it was award after award after award. Not just for my daughter, but she did get a few. Uh, This is the week when I went to her play day. And they had to give her a bag to bring all the ribbons home. And we're going to have to buy some more bulletin boards to put the ribbons on in her room. And this was the week when I went to my son's uh, sports banquet. And it was awards after awards after awards. And you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, you know, we have award ceremonies, and appreciation banquets for the measly accomplishments of men. And I ought to have an appreciation banquet every time I wake up for God. God, you're amazing. Every time I walk outside, every time I see the beauty of creation, every every time I see the expanse of heaven, God, you're amazing. You continue to amaze me. You are exalted. I praise you. And as I praise Him, I can never praise Him enough because He always sits above my praises and my blessings. That's the God we serve. And it's evident in creation. Second stop is the call of Abraham, verses 7 and 8. Thou art the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. And thou didst find his heart faithful before thee and didst make a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the Girgashite to give it to all his descendants. And thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. The God of this universe, the one who created it all, is interested in individuals. And he called a Gentile called in by the name of Abram. And he made a covenant with him. And part of that covenant was that his descendants would be a great nation. And that's part of what he's saying in verse 7. He changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And then not only did he promise a nation, but he promised a land, and that's described in verse 8. And so as these people are praying, they are the descendants of Abraham, and they are in the land. And so they say at the end of verse 8, God, you are righteous because you've kept your promise. And then they move on to the next point in history, the Red Sea. Verses 9 to 11. Notice verse 9. Thou didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and didst hear their cry by the Red Sea. Two situations caused the children of Israel to cry out to God. One was their affliction in Egypt and the other was their peril at the Red Sea. And God responded both times. First of all, he describes the deliverance from Egypt in verse 10. He says, Then thou didst perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh against all his servants and all the people of his land. For thou didst know that they acted arrogantly toward them and didst make a name for thyself as it is this day. God demonstrated his power in Egypt with signs and wonders. The plagues of locusts and darkness and water turning to blood. And they say, notice, you made a name for yourself. You know, when... Moses first came to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, he came in and said, the Lord told me to tell you, let my people go. You know what Pharaoh said? Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Never heard of Him. But after ten plagues in Egypt, guess what? Pharaoh knew who the Lord was. And not only did Pharaoh know who the Lord was, but all the nations around knew who the Lord was. In fact, 500 years after that, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read about the Philistines lining up against the Israelites, and they brought the ark into the camp of Israel and started to celebrate, and the Philistines started to shake. And you know what they said? They said in 1 Samuel 4:8, These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. They knew about it because God had made a name for Himself. See, their theology wasn't very good. They had God's, plural, but they knew what happened because God made His mark in Egypt. And not only that, but He delivered them at the Red Sea. Look at verse 11. And thou didst divide the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers thou didst hurl into the depths like a stone into a raging water. Not only did God deliver them out of Egypt, but when they came to the Red Sea and they were pinned in and the enemies were coming down upon them, God opened the Red Sea and delivered them on dry land and then He drowned the Egyptian armies behind them. God is the Deliverer. And then we move on to the next point in history. That's the trip to Canaan in verses 12 to 18. Notice it says, And with a pillar of cloud thou didst lead them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. God guided them by His presence in the cloud and in the fire. Verse 13, Then thou didst come down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. Thou didst give them just ordinances, true laws, good statutes and commandments. So thou didst make known to them thy holy Sabbath and didst lay down for them commandments, statutes and law through thy servant Moses. God guided them through the cloud and the fire. God guided them through His word. He gave them His law. Not only that, God provided for them. Verse 15, Thou didst provide bread from heaven for them for their hunger. Thou didst... Bring forth water from a rock for them for their thirst, and thou didst tell them to enter in order to possess the land which thou didst swear to give them. When they were hungry, God gave them bread out of heaven. When they were thirsty, he had Moses strike the rock and brought water to them. And of course, both of those symbols we find in the New Testament are symbols of the Lord Jesus. He said in John 6, I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 4, that Jesus is the rock which is really a great picture because you remember Moses took his rod and he struck the Red Sea and it brought judgment on Egypt, which is a picture of the world. He took that same rod and he struck the rock, which is Christ. And out of the rock flowed life-giving water. The, The rod of judgment fell on Christ and out of the rock comes the water of life. It's a beautiful picture. God provided for them. In the wilderness. And then He brought them up to the promised land and He said, I'm going to give it to you. Go on in. And what happened? Verse 16, But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to thy commandments. And they refused to listen. They did not remember your wonderful deeds which you performed among them. They became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They got to Kadesh Barnea. They were right on the doorstep of the promised land. And they saw the giants and they said, God's not big enough to handle those giants. And so they became arrogant and stubborn and ignorant. They forgot all those things that God had done in the past. And Numbers 14.4 says, they said, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. That's amazing to me. They saw all the plagues in Egypt, they came out of Egypt, they came to the Red Sea, God opened the Red Sea, God led them each day by a cloud of, of, uh, a column of cloud and a column of fire. He provided food out of heaven, water out of a rock, he brought them right up to the promised land and they said, "Mm, no, I don't think so. Now what would you do if you were God? Well, I'm thankful you're not. Because the end of verse 17 tells us what he's like. It says, But thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and thou didst not forsake them. Then look at verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. God didn't forsake them even in idolatry. I mean, that should have been the kicker. They got out and they took all the gold in the camp and they melted it down and Aaron made it into a golden calf and they bowed down and said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Wow. You know what God did? God showed them grace and God forgave them. Amazing. Then he moves to the next point, the wilderness, verses 19 to 21. Thou and thy great compassion didst not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for the way in which they were to go. And thou didst give, give thy good spirit to instruct them. Thy manna thou didst not withhold from their mouth. And thou didst give them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years thou didst provide for them in the wilderness. And they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. Because the children of Israel didn't enter the land, they were wandering in the wilderness For 40 years. But even in that situation, when they were not going anywhere, God didn't forsake them. He didn't take the pillar of cloud. He didn't take the pillar of fire. He didn't take His spirit away. He didn't take the manna away. He didn't take the water away. In fact, for 40 years, they had no needs. Their clothes didn't wear out, and their feet did not even swell. God cared for them. Next point is the promised land, verses 22 to 26. Real quickly, In fact, we won't read it. But but notice verse 25. It describes how they went into the promised land. Verse 25 says, "...and they captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and reveled in thy great goodness." They finally came into the promised land. They took over the promised land. And not only did they get the land, but they got the houses that were already built and the wells that were already dug and houses full of goods. They were blessed with all this. And it says, They reveled in thy great goodness. Couldn't get any better than that. But what did they do? Verse 26, But they became disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to thee, and they committed great blasphemies. In a time of testing at Kadesh Barnea, they failed. Now in a time of blessing, they failed again. They reveled in God's goodness, but they didn't revel in God. And then the next point in history is the judges in verses 27 and 28. Therefore thou didst deliver them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them, But when they cried to thee in the time of their distress, thou didst hear from heaven, and according to thy great compassion, thou didst give them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. You read about those deliverers in the book of Judges. Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, all these ones that God raised up. Verse 28, But as soon as they had rest, what did they do? They did evil again before thee. Therefore thou didst abandon them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to thee, thou didst hear from heaven, and many times thou didst rescue them according to thy compassion. The cycle continued. They did evil, they were oppressed, they cried to God, they were rescued, they did evil, they were oppressed, they cried to God, they were rescued, they did evil again, and the cycle continued on. Aldous Huxley, who uh, I wouldn't quote on many things, made a significant quote when he said, the most important of all the lessons of history is that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history. And here we see the cycle. It just keeps going over and over again as they fail and yet see God deliver them from that situation. Which brings us to the eighth point that they stop at, and that is the Kings, verses 29 to 31. And again, it's the same story. If you read about the kings in, the, in Chronicles and other places, you read that most of the time the kings rose to power. Immediately they became arrogant. They turned their back on the prophets. And most of the kings have this little subscription after their rule. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And finally what we find is at the end of verse uh, 30, therefore thou didst give them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Finally God sent them into captivity because of their situation. But if you notice verse 31, it says, Nevertheless, in thy great compassion thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them, for thou art a gracious and compassionate God. Even though they went into captivity, God reserved and preserved an exile, a remnant there in the exile, to bring back. And so He showed His compassion and He showed His grace. Which brings us to the last point, and that is the present. And that's in verses 32 to 37. Notice verse 32. Now. He's come all through the history and now He comes to now. This moment in time. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does keep covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before Thee which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all Thy people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. The kings of Assyria were the first to take them into captivity Verse 33, however, thou art just in all that has come upon us. Thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept thy law or paid attention to thy commandments and thy admonitions which, with which thou hast admonished them. But they in their own kingdom with thy great goodness which thou didst give them, with the broad and rich land which thou didst set before them, did not serve thee. Or turn from their evil deeds. Why are we in the situation we're in now? Because of our sin. We deserve it. And then notice verses 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which thou didst give to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves on it, and its abundant produce is for the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sin. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. The people of Israel have come back from the captivity. The temple has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. But as they say in the last phrase of verse 37, we are in great distress. What's going on? Well, look at the first word of verse 36. They say, behold. In other words, look at us. We're in the land of promise, but we're slaves. And all the produce and all the the goods go to the king of Persia. And our bodies even belong to him. If he snaps his finger, he could call us onto a work crew. He could make us fight in the military. Even our cattle belong to him. We are slaves and we are in distress. Why? Look at the phrase in verse 37. Because of our sin. See, the people of Israel realized that their external circumstances were what they were because of their internal circumstances. They were slaves of the king of Persia because they had made themselves slaves of sin. They were slaves of the king of Persia because they hadn't gotten real with God. And I have to imagine that in the back of their minds on this occasion was a verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14 that reads, If my people who are called by My name, will humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And here they come on this occasion, separating from the foreigners, fasting in sackcloth with dirt on them to confess their sins to the Lord. And as they do so, they look up and they look back remembering that the God that they bow before is the one who created the universe, the one who established their nation, the one who delivered them from Egypt, the one who led them to the promised land, the one who forgave them when they wouldn't enter, the one who provided for them in the wilderness, the one who brought them finally into the promised land, the one who had great compassion when they rebelled, the one who kept them through the captivity, and the one who was still faithfully keeping His covenant. He's a God of glory, faithfulness, power, forgiveness, compassion, goodness, patience, and grace. You know what? I am convinced that when we come to realize that we belong to a God like that, we will put dirt on our heads. And we will begin to get real with Him.